0: Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant, and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers and certainly hope you're enjoying your weekend. Some of the quick fixes for Kentucky elections during the pandemic could now become permanent. Secretary of State Michael Adams will join us later to discuss what could change for the next round of elections. But first, this weekend wraps up Black History Month. We have presented several stories on WKYT during the month that highlight the contributions of African-Americans in Kentucky. Now a discussion on where things are and where we go from here on issues of race relations and diversity. Joining us first is Dr. Danny Moore. He's a vice president at Eastern Kentucky University and the school's diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. Dr. Moore, thank you very much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. How important is it, first off, in your view, that during Black History Month, and at all times, that uh, that we consider the, the key contributions of uh, African Americans uh, in Kentucky and beyond?
1: I think it's imperative. I think for so long, Black History Month has been kind of seen as an afterthought, or Black history in general has been seen as an afterthought. And I think it's important that we understand that Black history is American history, but I think for for many of us, you know, I had a colleague that I was talking to recently, and when we, when we think about what's taught in, in education period, right, or, or in higher education, we think about a lot of folks can see their culture represented in the curriculum, in their day-to-day experiences, in what they're learning, and for a lot of for a lot of uh, Black folks, it's, it's like their courses are taught as an elective. So I think it's imperative that we understand that Black history is American history, and, and as we think about You know, people like myself. You know, I am a product of, of you know, what came before me, and and my success wouldn't be what it is today if it wasn't for the people that paved the way for me. So I think it's just it's important that we look at it as as American history, and we understand the 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 folks that came before us and, and really paved the way for African Americans to be successful in this community.
0: As we look at where things are now, you know, it was a dramatic year, certainly a struggle in this country with the COVID pandemic and the, the racial strife as well. Uh, but there were some interesting conversations that got going. Uh, have the things that we have started talking about uh,
1: been fruitful in your view? Definitely, I think uh, I think we have, we have started to acknowledge things like systematic racism are real. I think for so long the conversation is, you know, racism doesn't exist or, you know, let's look at, you know, how we get past racism. I think right now the conversation shifts to anti-racism. The conversation shifts to organizations having these uncomfortable and difficult conversations. I think that's where progress happens when we're in a room or we're in spaces and we're talking about how we move forward or how we eradicate racism or how we look at, you know, look at our organizations, look at our our policies and our practices and look at it from a lens where racism does exist and, and we have to we have to move to a space where we're thinking about that and we're having those difficult conversations so i think though the you know you talked about the, the things that have happened over the last 12 months you know it's been a, it's been a difficult year but i think it, again if i had to, if i had to see a bright spot it's now where we're able to have some of these tough conversations and move to a space of
0: learning and you touched on how there are so many uh, perspectives uh, you know people of a certain age were taught that the the goal in American society was to become post racial that uh, to get to a point where uh, race isn't a consideration and decisions about jobs and promotions. Uh, then there's also the narrative, as you were saying, that society needs to be intentional uh, in an ongoing way about engaging voices, providing everybody a seat at the table. Uh, how, how do you square those things?
1: Well, I, I think you I think you, you kind of touched on that. I think it's about intentionality. I think. You know, I, I'm a parent. So as a parent, you know, I have conversations with my children all the time. But we, we have to talk about, for my my daughter's lived experiences may be different than a lot of people. Like so, so to say, you know, things are post-racial is it's not realistic for all people. So I think it's in, it's important that we intentionally have conversations to talk about how we move through it, how we how we navigate, how we we do better. You know, I think you know I get a chance to work with some great colleagues, and we're able to have some of these tough conversations on how we how we move our organization forward, how are we intentionally making, making space, how are we we looking at not just the seat at the table, but our conversations, our policies, our practices. We need to be looking at that from a space to make sure they're equitable. You know, I, I think we for so long have looked at trying to make things equal. You know, everybody's the same, everything's equal. I think it's important that when we think about race relations, we're thinking about equity. We're thinking about making sure Every, everybody that walks in the door has what they need to be successful. And, and I think it's, it's, it's about being intentional with it.
0: We have seen ample evidence that the, the COVID vaccination distribution has been inequitable. Uh, you know, and trust is a big uh, issue in that. How important is it that healthcare professionals recognize that there are legitimate questions to be answered, uh, even if the science uh, pretty clearly shows that the vaccine uh, is safe?
1: Well, I, I think it's. I think it's. We have to think about the communities that are already disproportionately affected by so many different things. So, so I think it's hard to say. You know, I have this, this, this vaccine, and you know, I'm going to go. You know, this is this the the end of COVID, but for certain communities, that's difficult. There's, there's. We first have to have conversations about why we why we lack trust or why why there's inequities in the first place. So I think though i you know i, I I'm, I'm happy that we're trying to get the vaccine to as many people as possible but i think we have to do a better job of, of some of those initial uh, uh, uh initial difficult conversations about how we got here how, how do we get to this space where there's a lack of trust you know we have to talk about history you know we have to talk about how vaccines were, were tried on, on certain communities so i think and, and again many many healthcare workers are are having those conversations are understanding why communities feel this way and then also understanding certain communities lack certain resources that are 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 needed to be able to 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 get to the vaccine or, or to understand so i think having some conversation with some of those communities engaging with communities and, and and not just you know looking at the the end product but some of that some of that community building in the middle
0: Dr. Moore, how uh, deeply embedded within uh, the racial uh, equity question uh, are the criminal justice issues that are uh, are being addressed now at at some levels? Uh, at least are, are now a, a very serious conversation in the country.
1: Oh, definitely. Oh, I, I think the I think it's, again talking about you know equity. I think the conversation is starting to move to a space where we're having difficult conversations around equity, and I think one thing that's exciting is a lot of these conversations are including you know law enforcement they're including policymakers or decision makers so it's not just you know the, the folks that are are seeing the harm i think that the the, the people who have the, the opportunity to make some some very important changes they're engaged in spaces where we're having have a conversation and as a higher education professional students are challenging us to do better they want these conversations they want us to process they want us to to engage with them about how we can move move things forward so you know i think it's exciting for me as a as an educator that you know students are really pushing us to do better
0: i I think i hear you saying that if everybody is to be a stakeholder uh, then everybody uh, needs to have a voice and a place at the table uh, to be heard
1: definitely definitely
0: EKU is considered a, a school of opportunity. Do you find that in this uh, racially, politically divisive time, that uh, uh, it gets some things right when it comes to uh, fostering some dialogue and uh, and thoughts about uh, diversity and inclusion? And particularly considering your uh, service area uh, includes uh, a lot of Appalachia uh, and then into the, the Bluegrass region as well.
1: Definitely, yes, I think uh, you know. Again, I've only been here since July. But but you know I, I feel like we're a leader in this conversation. You know I think we from the from the board to the president we're talking about you know the importance of diversity equity inclusion the importance that it has in our community the the importance that we're developing leaders that can lead in the global world. So I, I think you know for me this is exciting. We are we are building something great here and and you know we're building spaces to have difficult conversations whether it's. Conversations with our incoming students, where there's conversations with our faculty and staff, we are we are at a place where we understand as an institution we have a responsibility to prepare our students to lead, and you know from the president down we are we are definitely doing that. What are your goals
0: uh, at EKU moving forward, and how might you lead the conversation in the region, uh, and uh, and and then determine uh, in a few years uh, what has been successful?
1: Definitely, I, I think we you know I think. For the Commonwealth, CP does a great job of starting that conversation about institutions. We are, we you know, we provide metrics. but I think for us, it's it's we're, we're we're striving to be, um, you know, our commitment, right? Like I think for a lot of folks, diversity and inclusion is about compliance. We do it because we have to do it. Well, for us, it's commitment. We we believe in what we're saying. We believe in what we're doing, and and we want to be the best at it. We I feel like you know for for students, this is a great place to come, learn, grow, develop, lead. And so what we're doing is we're creating opportunities for our students to come engage with difference. You know, I think we we all talk about being inclusive, but to be inclusive, we have to be okay with engaging with different, we have to be okay with facilitating some of these difficult and uncomfortable conversations. And I think that's what we're doing here. We are we are doing what we have to do to make sure our students are ready to lead and grow and thrive. And, and this is exciting, I mean, you know, You know, I talk about being an educator. It's exciting as a parent to, you know, work at an institution that, you know, as a a parent of a high school senior, she's excited to come here and to be be a part of what we're doing here because this is a great place.
0: As you uh, uh, look forward to right now, I mean, are, do you think I mean, you've been in this a while now? You were nearly 10 years at the Northern Kentucky University and now at, at EKU. Uh, so you've uh, had a good uh, perspective on, on the Commonwealth. Uh, is progress uh, being made?
1: Oh, oh definitely, definitely. I, I, now, again, I, I say definitely, but I say that we still have work to do. And, and you know, and, and I think, you know, I had some conversations this week as we make progress, you know, we have to continue to be commitment because it's easy to go backwards. So as we start to see, you know, we, we've, we at EKU, we've been able to present data to show we're retaining more students. You know, they're, we're graduating more diverse students. So as we continue to make progress, we have to continue to to show our commitment and do the good work. I mean, it's, This is work that is ongoing, it's, it's continuous. And, and as we continue to do that, we will continue to be successful. So we can't get complacent we, we have to, to keep our commitment front uh, front and center and continue to move in that direction.
0: Dr. Danny Moore, who is EKU's uh, vice president and the uh, chief officer for uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And stay with us now. We'll be back with the Kentucky Secretary of State, Michael Adams, on some changes that may be coming the next time elections roll around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers and we're glad you're here. Well, some of the election changes enacted under an emergency declaration over COVID now become permanent. Kentucky voters turned out in large numbers for last year's primary and general elections, and many indicated it was the greater flexibility and rules that gave them the opportunity to vote. Some others say the rules are the rules, and if you want to say you need to show up and vote on Election Day. So Secretary of State Michael Adams is the Secretary of uh, the State of the Commonwealth, he is a Republican and he is pushing hard for some reforms and uh, just as we we actually delayed taping this interview, just as we're doing this, uh, Mr. Secretary, you got some good news from the state House, right?
2: Yeah, it's been quite a 24 hours. Uh, yesterday, our, our election reform bill, our easy to vote hard to cheat bill was heard in committee in the House. It passed unanimously, which we didn't really expect. And uh, then within 24 hours, it was on the House floor. Uh, Passing 93 to four, Uh, it's really remarkable. The momentum that we've gotten behind this legislation, and I feel pretty good about it shot in the Senate as well.
0: Do you think the turnout last year and the response from voters shows that they want more options uh, rather than uh, uh, having to show up during a 12 hour period on a weekday when uh, it's a work day for most people?
2: There's no question about it, uh, but clearly the way people wanted to vote last time was to vote in person, uh, but to do so before Election Day. Uh, there's really no industry in America, no government function in America that's limited to one day and twelve-hour span. Uh, let's let's keep up with modern times. That's why we have a legislature meeting every year. Uh, Kentuckians really want to vote in person, even in a pandemic. Seventy percent of our voters in uh, November voted in person, but most of them voted before election day. Forty-five percent of all the votes were cast in person, but before election day. That was the plurality way people voted. Uh, it's not feasible. It's it's not sustainable to have two and three week long elections, but having just a few days, including a Saturday, is a game changer in helping people vote, especially oh, working
0: people. Let's talk about what what this bill would change uh, if it does make its way through both chambers.
2: Well, the key components are number one, three days of early voting, uh, no excuse required. Uh, you can vote on uh, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday before election day, so you'll have four days uh, to vote. Uh, we keep the vote center ability of the counties we're not going to close all the precincts but we're going to allow the counties to have centralized vote centers where you can vote regardless of your precinct that's really convenient for most people Uh, we keep the absentee ballot portal that allows us to track absentee ballots and see where where they are in the system allows the voters to have that transparency as well as the election officials it keeps the cure process for voters whose signatures have changed since they registered to vote and they signed a card and then they vote absentee 50 years later and their signature looks different. Now instead of their votes just being thrown out, they're actually contacted so they can have a chance to prove their identity. Those are the things that we did by executive orders last year uh, that were really popular and we're trying to keep that. But we also have enhanced ability in this bill to allow me to take further action to get the voter rolls cleaned up.
0: Yeah, and I wanna talk about that uh, here in just, uh, just a second, but uh, you know, what this does not include then is all kinds of uh, uh, early absentee voting which uh, was one thing that some people also said they liked but there was also the criticism and the questions about uh, uh, security well uh,
2: i'll tell you I, i've got no problem with absentee voting mail-in voting with respect to security we've made that totally airtight and insecure but the fact is it's the most expensive way you can run an election in a pandemic we ob- we obviously had to have that as an option for people who had health conditions or because of their age were especially vulnerable. Uh, But that wasn't uh, something that we were pushing on a permanent basis. That was for a pandemic. Uh, That wasn't a no excuse absentee. It was a pandemic excuse absentee. The rules that we're writing now are for permanent use and we just don't feel that that's the best way to run our elections.
0: You also uh, support uh, allowing election workers to work half a day. Uh, Is it more challenging all the time to get poll workers, period? And especially when you're asking that they show up for a a more than 12 hour day, a training session before that, I mean, it's quite a commitment.
2: It is, I I introduced through uh, through emergency powers last year, uh, reforms like that, they did not make it into the bill as it currently stands and and that's fine. I really wanted to give the clerks some more options in terms of recruiting poll workers, because the problem that we have recruiting poll workers it's not a new problem. It's not even a COVID problem. It's a perpetual problem. It's uh, something that older folks do and then they age out and they're not being replaced by younger people. But I do think the vote center uh, language in this bill will actually help a lot with enabling us to be able to carry off more in-person voting, but with not as many poll workers.
0: There were some who have said there was massive fraud in the November election around the country, though there's been a, a little evidence of that uh, presented to, to the courts. Do you think that Kentucky's process went well?
2: I really couldn't be happier in that, you know, things uh, it's interesting as recently as uh, June, I was being called a vote suppressor by Hillary Clinton and, and other celebrities out of our state. And then we actually had the most successful election in America, we became a national model do will take that from me, take that from the Washington Post. Uh, we became a model that people look to. Uh, I'm really proud of that. Uh, it wasn't an accident. It's something that took a lot of work with the governor and, and Democrats and Republicans uh, together across the state uh, to pull off. Our county clerks really did a great job. And, and so that wasn't an accident. My goal now is to keep us from reverting to what we had for 200 years, which frankly was less secure a model for, both, uh, for about integrity than what we had in 2020
0: yeah and i don't uh, want to uh, totally dismiss the questions about uh, security and the the potential for fraud you have purged a lot of people from the voting rolls early this year how many dead people were still uh, on kentucky's voting list
2: we think we're just about caught up with getting dead voters off the rolls we've actually had several months i've been here in this office we've taken more dead voters off the rolls and added live voters (laughs) which is pretty tough especially in a presidential cycle, with the type of interest you have uh, from people registering to vote. Uh, But the next step is to take people off who have moved out of our state and registered to vote in some other state. Under our current law, even if I'm notified of that, I can't take those people off. I have to leave them on our rolls while they're still on some other rolls in some other state voting in the other state. So I've asked the legislature to close that loophole in our law and allow me to take those people off. That could be hundreds of thousands of voters.
0: While you're establishing yourself as a reformer in that office, (laughs) we have a a patchwork of uh, election rules around the country, different states with different traditions. Uh, Some also have called over the years for an open primary. The fastest growing segment of party identification is independent and uh, you have to join a party and vote uh, to vote in a primary in Kentucky, even though independents have to pay for the election, as every taxpayer does. Should independents have a say in primaries? I don't have strong
2: feelings about that either way, but I will, I will tell you, I've never met a Democratic or Republican legislator who thinks that we should open the primary. The reason being Democrats wanna choose their own candidates and the Republicans wanna choose their own candidates. And so and until we have, right now we have about 9% of our electorate or registered independent or other party. Unless that segment grows significantly, I don't really expect demand from the public in favor of open primaries. But
0: those people are paying for the election right (laughs) sure
2: yeah and they and they can vote in the election if it's a nonpartisan primary they can vote in it
0: as you look at uh, the trend lines and uh, i know you've always uh, been uh, factual with us and not a partisan cheerleader but the the republican registration is now getting very close to the uh, democratic registration uh, which was dominant even uh, you know as uh, a decade ago or so Uh, do you see those lines crossing uh, within the next year or so yeah I can't give you a, a,
2: a timeline uh, but I fully expect that during my term of office that the Republican Party will be the majority party by registration in Kentucky I don't know this for certain but I think that in 2019 that was the only election in state history that no Democrat was able to get a majority of votes for any office not even uh, Governor Bashir. that's that's pretty remarkable to me I grew up in an 88 percent Democrat county uh, McCracken that now is uh, ruby red uh, so I've certainly lived through that change in my lifetime
0: well. You may or may not have a position on this, although you are uh, an election expert. That's what you did before you were Secretary of State. There's a proposal to change the way a Kentucky governor could fill an open U.S. Senate seat. It would force the governor to pick from a list provided by the party that held the seat. Uh, If a vacancy happened late enough, there could be a wide open election and then potentially a runoff, and that hasn't been part of the scene here in Kentucky. Uh, Are you supportive of that? It's the kind of thing that our office Stays neutral. On, we'll leave that up to the
2: legislature to make that sort of determination. To me, it's very clear under the 17th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that it's solely in the province of the legislature to decide how a term, uh, a vacancy, is filled in the in the U.S. Senate. Uh, The Constitution is very clear about that, and of course, we'll defer to the legislature.
0: There's also a bill that would make uh, Louisville's elections non-partisan, as most city offices are across Kentucky. Uh, But partisan races are the tradition there, and most localities get to make the decision uh, for themselves. Uh, Do you take a position on uh, how that should go, whether that is a a local decision or something for Frankfurt to decide for Louisville?
2: I I don't really have a position because it's not a a state election or a federal election. Uh, All those local elections are run by the county clerks, and so i'll leave it up to the county clerk in jefferson county
0: 2021 is a, an off year for elections here in kentucky uh, there wouldn't be any unless there are some thank uh, goodness yeah, right, right. We get that uh, every five years. <laughs> uh, I guess it's once every four, right, within the four year cycle. Uh, no constitutional amendments can be on the ballot this year, but when will things uh, begin setting up for the 2022 cycle? When uh, can people start to file? That will include the U.S. Senate race, congressional, legislative, and a lot of local contests next year.
2: Well, I saw that uh, Senator Rand Paul just announced he plans to run for another term and is going to file with our office obviously to do that Uh, by law, we're not able to open up candidate filing until November. Uh, So I believe it's November 3rd. I think starting November 3rd, uh, we'll have actually quite a crowd of candidates for all sorts of offices uh, beginning to come back into the Capitol and filing. I look forward to that. I really enjoy that part of this job is meeting all the candidates and stamping their papers.
0: As candidates uh, make their plans about next year, what would you remind them uh, to think about as they, uh, as they do get ready to get those uh, papers together? Sometimes there's confusion, you know, do you file in Frankfurt or can you file back home for instance? Well, you know, the, the, the big thing that's gonna lead to potential
2: confusion uh, is what the lines are gonna be. Uh, we're at that point, uh, uh, the uh, decennial redrawing of the lines for county offices, for state offices, for federal offices, that happens. Usually it would happen in this year in the session. Uh, Right now they they can't do that uh, because they don't have census data yet that's been delayed uh, from Washington. Uh, So we're expecting to get that information uh, this summer or fall, and then there'll either be a special session, presumably uh, to draw those lines, or they'll take it up at the beginning of of the next session in January. So
0: you believe that 2022 elections will be run with new district lines?
2: Yeah, I'm very, very confident of that. Uh, I, I think it'll likely or happen uh, that you'll see the filing deadline being delayed from January to maybe even April, uh, so that we can have a session, we can pass new lines in the session, and then put people on notice what the lines are and what districts they live in. They, they can't make those uh, decisions about what to run for if they're not sure what district they're in.
0: Secretary of State Michael Adams, thank you for joining us. Congratulations on getting your bill as far as you have, and we'll follow. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks Stay with us. We'll be back on Kentucky Newsmakers in a moment. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. And some Kentuckians took part in the trials. An FDA advisory committee is reviewing Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine candidate. Our chief national political analyst Greta Van Susteren has details.
3: Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your full court fast break. The nation could be days away from rolling out a third COVID-19 vaccine. Data shows Johnson & Johnson's vaccine, with the current COVID strains in the U.S., has an overall efficacy rate of 72 percent. That is notably lower than Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines, but it is the first single-dose shot to prevent COVID infection. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine can also be refrigerated for at least three months. This could simplify distribution efforts still lagging from logistical hurdles. Johnson & Johnson plans to have 20 million doses ready by the end of March. Pfizer and Moderna are pledging to combine 220 million doses by the end of March. And so far, roughly 50 million Americans have received one or both COVID doses. Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, says the CDC could soon release new guidance for vaccinated people, He expects those new guidelines to relax safety regulations for people who have been fully vaccinated. Want more full court press? Tune in Sunday. We bring politics home, covering the national stories that impact you.
0: And remember that you can watch Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren this morning at 1130 on WKYT. And that's Kentucky Newsmakers. We'll see you bright and early this week on WKYT this morning. I'm actually going to take a couple of days off. I'll join the crowd on Wednesday, but the rest of our morning team will be here. And we certainly hope you make it a good week ahead.